Welcome to episode 15 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We are back with another episode. This is a news-only edition of the episode. Uh, we were just chatting before we went live here, and Brian is very eager to share his exciting story about Boston. Brian, take it away. So my news article, which I think is a really good um, indication out of the mayor of Boston, they are launching a pilot program to help incentivize developers to really focus on the conversion of class B and C office buildings to another use, likely residential. So if you have a building that's valued at about $10 million, your tax bill as an office building is about 250, you're using round numbers, about $250,000 a year. This program, which um, put you, if, if uh, accepted into it as a 29 year incentive program would bring that tax bill down to roughly $30,000 a year. So a material change in the tax cost, um, which is getting some pushback, obviously, with the reduction in tax is to the city. However, I think long term, it is a great program and could be um, could be a good, a good indication of where the city thinks these older buildings are going. So as I was thinking about it over the weekend, the, the point I want to make is I'm viewing this is this could be a micro conversation around Boston, but there's a there's a larger discussion too around other markets. I'm viewing this change as a great reset in Boston. So I went uh, over the weekend to CoStar and I ran the average age of buildings of office buildings in Boston. They were built in 1930. The average age of Class B buildings, 1914, and Class C buildings, 1916. And this is using CoStar data. So, you know, I'm calling it a great reset. This is this is this is a opportunity to take all this old crap that some Class B developer went in, put a new lobby in, added some fire life safety, and got forty, fifty, sixty dollars, seventy dollar gross rents. Those buildings in that smartest developer in the room discussion is gone. Those class B developers are gone. What we're going to have is this new product that's coming out. So there's a new building in Boston that's being built by Millennium um, that's 700,000 square feet. It just delivered. You've got the likes of McKinsey that did a huge lease. Deloitte just did a huge lease. Um, and you've got Heinz doing a project over the major transportation hub in Boston. You've got Boston Properties considering doing a major project over a transportation hub in the back bay of Boston. What I'm seeing, what I'm, I guess the point I'm making is this is going to take all this crap and take the product that companies went to because they had to out of the market. And they're going to have, sure, companies going to have to pay up. They're going to take less space. I just think this is going to leave a better office market when people come back. I think it's going to leave a better experience for the employees when they come into the office. And I think it's in the end, we're going to look back on this time and say this was a really healthy time to reset what expectations are for companies to provide offices to their, to their employees. They're not going to be accepting a 1930s office building that the landlord put a little bit of money into the lobby and it has zero natural light as compared to this new product. So I think looking back on this in many years, it'll be a real healthy uh, conversation around, yeah, can you believe we used to work in that piece of crap over there? That's now a really cool loft building or uh, something. So anyway, that's my take. Hey, Brian. Uh, okay, so first of all, that's super interesting. And it's also 
really just another version of a story we've told a lot on this pod, and that's the flight to quality that's happening in office space. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how um, what happens to the rents in those premium assets. Yes, flight to quality, but with the whole office sector coming down, that I don't. I think those premium rents are going to come down, and just how much uh, we'll have to wait and see. But here's what I wanted to ask Brian. Maybe you said it, and maybe I missed it. You tell me. What are the office owners opting into to get this reduction in tax? Um, are they opting and committing to redevelop as multifamily, or you, you mentioned opting in? What are they agreeing to do to get that reduction in tax? Good question, John. Yeah, they're they're opting into an immediate. They, they're using the word immediate, and the details aren't worked out yet, but an immediate um, commitment to convert the building to residential. So it's in uh, that timeline uh, on immediacy. It's not something you can opt into and then and then hold off. The city wants you to start doing the work now, and that's that's the direction that they've indicated. So. Um, you know, in, in the article, it talks, a number of developers are quoted just saying, hey, we're looking forward to seeing the details of the program, but it sounds like, a, you know, a great start to the conversation. It's interesting that they think that uh, it will be an adequate incentive for people to do this type of development. It doesn't seem like that much money in the context of converting these buildings that uh, generally are not meant to be converted to multifamily. I'm very curious at how effective it will actually be. It seems like it's going to be a windfall for the few people that would be doing it anyways. And for the people that aren't going to consider it, I'm not sure that it's going to be meaningful enough for them to actually say, this didn't pencil before, but now that we're going to save, you know, 100000 or $200,000 a year in taxes for 29 years, it does. I don't know. I think the upfront costs of something like this are so high um, that that probably isn't going to move the needle. Um, on the topic of um, taxes, though, something kind of interesting that I don't think we've covered on the pod. Um, so earlier this year, um, Los Angeles passed a new tax, and it's a, called the mansion tax. And it's a tax on any real estate sale over $5 million. And then as you go over $10 million, you pay an even higher tax rate. And this this has to do with the transfer tax. It's a really meaningful increase in the transfer tax in Los Angeles. And the um, increase in the transfer tax, or basically all of this transfer tax goes mo primarily to address homelessness. And the city's like, okay, we're just going to throw this tax on all these wealthy people with homes, this and that, forgetting that a ton of these buildings that are selling for over $5 million are commercial properties, right? And what's happened, and granted, there are obviously some uh, other economic factors, like nationally, the velocity of building sales has fallen precipitously because of the capital markets right now. But since enacting this law, the amount of buildings that are trading has fallen crazily. Uh, you know, they're projecting $800 million of proceeds from this. And in the first couple of months of this passing, they've generated like five and 10 million respectively per month. Like the run rate to get to where they are is so grossly behind what was predicted. And I just think that, um, Politicians really need to be thoughtful about creating incentives uh, or creating uh, disincentives to uh, buying and selling, redeveloping, developing at all real estate if they don't deeply understand the space. It seems like there are a lot of these laws that are thrown at a problem that politicians don't really understand that are either uh, counterproductive, in this case, actually reducing the tax base because it slowed sales down, 
I think in the long run, it probably will increase taxes, but it remains to be seen. Or secondarily in Boston, right? What if this ends up not being effective at all? And it's just a waste of taxpayer money because it's not a big enough incentive to get people to go. And it's only a windfall for people who are going to go anyways. I mean, Tucker, on, on the on the reduction in taxes, you know, you can't hit a home run unless you stand at the plate. I mean, you can't even hit a single, right? So at least the city is looking at it saying, we've got a problem. We're going to do our part. And yeah, it may not be material today, but if the building sits vacant for five years because you can't attract a tenant to it because there's opportunities in the market and there's a better quality building out there. And remember, Boston has, remember those, those, the average year built for class B buildings, Coastart tells me it's 1914. Um, it's just very, very old mill buildings. Now, granted, those have all been, been rehabbed many times. However, you can't rehab natural light and, and facades and window lines. And, and, you know, a lot of these buildings have front to back windows, no windows on the side. They're, they're just old crap that people have tried to put money into. And no one's coming back to that building. And I think cities like Boston, New York, Chicago, these old cities that have Philadelphia, that have these types of row buildings that were, you know, cool for the tech sector for a while, but, um, you know, they're, t- they're stepping up and taking a sublease in a, you know, the 1975 tower, but they're taking it on the, you know, 23rd floor and having some great natural light. Yeah. It's an old tower building. It's a class A minus, but, you know, so I think, I think you're right, but the developers that own these buildings today or the next ones, because these ones have given it back to the bank. I think there's going to be a shift in saying that no one wants to work in those buildings anymore. So we need to do something. And the only option that is is clearly visible today is a conversion to residential or taking the building down. And a lot of these buildings are um, challenged to take down because of where they are or if they're historical or within a historical neighborhood. I've got an article to share. Last pod, maybe the pod before, we were talking about bright spots in commercial real estate sector. Okay, so here's an article from MoneyWise. The bright spot in commercial real estate has been branded an all-weather asset class for investors. What is it? Student housing. Okay, it's still down, but it's not down anything close to office and and other market segments. So, yeah, that makes sense, right? Um, Kids going to school need to rent um, apartments, housing, while they're at school. And that might just be a bit of a resilient asset class. What do you think? John, I have a, a question. So student housing, it's interesting because I, I've been involved in a number of um, public-private partnership uh, projects to build student housing or to evaluate the being built here in Boston. And it has been a bright spot in these urban communities for a long time. But if you're an investor looking in, you know, short term, maybe, but if you're coming out of the ground with student housing today with all of the pressure and, and likely changes to um, secondary education and how, you know, someone was just telling me that Boston University, this is at a dinner I was at last week, because of the issues with student housing, and maybe this is maybe this is a different way to look at it, they are they're shipping that's maybe the wrong word, but shipping a lot of their freshman students 
overseas to do a semester abroad because they don't have housing for them freshman year. So this particular person's son is in London studying as a first semester freshman or second semester freshman. It's like that's not only is school overwhelming in, in you know moving away, but not only are you moving to Boston, you're moving to Boston to London. Um, and he was saying that they also have a program somewhere, um, somewhere I think it was Singapore or somewhere else over uh, even further away. So anyway, so there's certainly an issue, but in, it's from an asset class, you would have to think that the issue doesn't lie with with housing. It lies with how the universities are attracting students, charging students, and the overall ecosystem. And is that really a, a long-term safe play for, uh, you know, f for the industry? I don't know. So, Brian, your position is that if you're investing in this asset class and it's largely dependent on these universities, that uh, you have this sort of intermediary to your end customer base that's going to dictate some sort of uh, market demand based off of sending people abroad, things like that, and that that's a risk. Yeah, I think I think it just makes it, it because the, the returns on student housing are so low because it's supposed to be a safe investment. And a lot of people stay away from it because you can't get the returns that you need for your fund or, or whatnot, right? Because it's just a... a um, a sleepy safe investment that doesn't have the rent increases. It doesn't have the market fluctuations because it's all tied to the, the university that you're, that you're, um, that you're trying to attract people from, or you sign a contract with. So it, I just think that overall, if you look at that sector it's, it's poised for disruption, I think is a better way to say it because the university system seems to be in the spotlight every day around you've got the government trying to forgive loans, you've got costs skyrocketing, you've got housing shortages. Like, how is that all going to just continue to bump along? There seems to be, and one thing that BU is doing, I heard just this week, was they're shipping students overseas. So there's a, there seems to me some sort of a major disruption coming. And is it around the corner? Probably not, but it, it seems that, like there needs to be. I, I'm super surprised to hear that they're actually shipping kids to London because they don't have housing in Boston. That's crazy. But my, my, my final word on it, I wouldn't have thought of it as a safe, simple, quiet investment. I'm thinking um, they're only in school nine months out of the year. So they got that other three months. Either you're forcing them to sign a one-year lease when they're not going to be there for the summer, or you're signing a nine-month lease and having to find something in the interim over the summer months. Also, the renter profile, they aren't always pristine renters. You've got, you know, 18 to 22 year old kids. You're going to have a fair number of knuckleheads in that batch and uh, some, some tenant problems. So I think there is some, I don't, that's just my layperson perspective. I, I would be, uh, but Hey, if the returns are worth it, I'm, I'm in. Is this a sustainable asset class that's going to do well over time? Right. I mean, you think about population decline that we're experiencing and probably will continue to experience in the future. You think about online education, the uh, negative sentiment around taking out student loans to go to college, the negative sentiment about the actual real value of these degrees, the at least current um, significantly higher uh, costs to attend schools, uh, higher interest rates and borrowing costs to actually take out these loans, right? You think about all of that, and if student housing is built to support a student population based off of um, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago when, um, you know, maybe the rate of people going to college was 
was higher or lower. I would think that it's probably higher today. But if population goes down and sentiment changes from, hey, you need to go to college, this is super important, and the American dream is, you know, sending your kids to college, what if that changes? And it's based on, um, you know, 10 years ago or five or, or right now. And in five years, there's just way less people in college. Seems like that uh, creates a very real risk outside of the control of any student housing owner or developer that they can't control. Um, the other thing that is interesting to think about, and I perhaps am just colored by uh, living in Los Angeles and thinking of the student housing that exists for, you know, USC, Pepperdine, UCLA, LMU, places like that. And of course, they they have uh, on-campus student housing for all of those schools. But I would think that the vast majority of the student population does not live in that student housing, and they just live in uh, normal housing, or um, certainly a percentage of that market lives in uh, like giant apartment complexes that might be 500, 1,000 units that are within walking distance or a very short drive from campus that were developed by student housing developers for the intent to purely lease to people that go to, say, USC. Um, and you think about the marketability of a student housing asset uh, or just like multifamily asset that is leased 80% to students that go to USC, you're probably not going to be attracting any you know, young families or working couples or people that don't want to live in the you know, chaos of a quasi-dormitory. Um, but yeah, all, all of those things are interesting. I'm, I'm curious how the asset class will do over time. I would suspect it has a lot to do with uh, demographic changes and sentiment around the value of actually going to college. All right, so I'm going to take a departure from student housing, tax credits in Boston, um, and talk about the, kind of the broader kind of overall economy. So, you know, with this past year, you know, we've had normally inflation you know, lowering inflation has always involved in higher unemployment and uh, a downturn in the economy. And no economist thought this time would be any different. And there's been a lot of people, myself included, um, with a little bit more of a pessimistic view, thinking that we were just kind of staving off the eventual recession or big correction that was coming. And I'm a big proponent of the Wall Street Journal. I read it every single morning. And uh, every quarter they poll a bunch of academics, economists, um, and they ask them, you know, all sorts of questions. One of the questions is, what is the probability of a recession in the next six or 12 months? And supposedly, um, this recent poll, which they just did, uh, had the lowest percentage of the respondents suggesting that we would have a recession in the next 12 months, down from 61% to 54%. So historically speaking, 54% chance is still relatively high. Um, but I think what people are starting to realize is that the labor market has been incredibly resilient, um, despite what inflationary measures we had to go through uh, to bring inflation back down. Um, and I don't know if we're going to actually, I'm starting to kind of turn the table in terms of like, do I think we're going to see some sort of major correction? I think there's a chance that we, you know, maybe have, I hate saying this as a cliche saying, but a soft landing um, versus kind of a hard bump. Um, and, but I think, you know, for those that are of our listeners, um, nobody wants a recession, nobody cheers on a recession. Um, but I think the good news for corporate tenants, uh, for those that we represent is that what's been left in the wake of this last two years with a, a pandemic and a, and, and rising inflation has been actually really good news for those that occupy office space, not so good for the landlords. And there's the whole other discussion, which we won't get to go down right now, which is the mounting, um, 
loans and, and commercial real estate debt that could implode. Um, and it already has in some cases. But the reality is that, you know, the recession, I think, as I look at it or lack thereof, um, has been nothing but a blessing for my clients. I mean, vacancies at all time high in most major metropolitan markets. Historically, um, rates do lag vacancy. So for those that haven't seen some of the numbers in terms of lease rates come down as much as you might think, that's kind of normal. It usually takes time for those to correct. Um, but I just opened it up for discussion here. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm not suggesting we're out of the woods yet, but I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of, do you think we've avoided a, a recession like some, some economists and academics think we have? Yeah. I, oh, and I tend, I tend to be pretty optimistic. Um, you know, soft landing absent the graceful landing of another black swan. We, we can't see what we can't see. We have our blind spots, but, um, things look pretty darn good. You know, and one thing that I'll be controversial. One thing people don't talk a lot about is that Biden's done some some good things. This Inflation Reduction Act, spending and manufacturing coming back to the U.S. Um, you know, quietly in the background, we're doing some good stuff. The economy is actually looking pretty good from my vantage today. Hundred percent. And I honestly, I think the programs that you referenced, John, are great programs. I would be hesitant to think that any of them have ramped up in a material way to actually be the reasons that the economy is avoiding recession. I think both uh, programs you've referenced are, like our country's infrastructure is pathetic uh, as compared on a global scale. And I think bringing manufacturing back, uh, I'm seeing it with my clients. It's really um, important, I think, to our national security and to the average American's likelihood to be prosperous and, and grow and you know do what our parents did. Uh, but I don't think that either of those programs in, what, 18 months have had an opportunity to get the wheels spinning fast enough to be the reason that we are where we are today. I, um, but I, I think, oh, and you're right. I think, you know, economists have been, I don't think they've ever not predicted, what's that whole saying? Like an economist has never missed a recession since economists have been around because they predict like so many more. And everyone was screaming there's going to be a recession, but all the fundamentals didn't weren't uh, aligned for it. You know, you've got inverse yield curves, you've got uh, inflation through the roof. But the American consumer now, there are signs like uh, the, the debt load for the consumer is through the roof. Uh, there is some slowing signs. I think if, if you saw Airbnb um, came out and had said this is one of their worst years ever for for people booking um, throughout the country. So there's some kinks in the armor on the American consumer, but it's um, it's a great time to be an American, I think, because we're resilient and we continue to innovate and people still have a job and the economy's good. And, uh, you know, I think, I, I think you're right. I think it's, I think this is a great time. We look back 12 months from now, I think this will be a great time to, to be a tenant broker, to be a tenant and, the whole great reset I was talking about, companies are going to be better off. They're going to have um, a better sense of what their needs are. I think the, the whole craziness that went on in tech is going to be the the, uh, the sore spot that continues to probably bleed for many years to come in terms of the amount of space that they took and all the construction that followed. And you know, cities like San Francisco are going to be really um, challenged. I mean, Mark Benioff over the weekend even said that you know San Francisco's not going to be what it was is that people are just not going to come back um, but I think you know I think overall um, 
I think we're going to be looking back on this as a reset towards a much better end product for our clients and for the American people. Yeah, I, I think there's um, <clears throat> there's still a lot to be thankful for, Ryan. And I think that's something I remind myself of all the time is that I don't want to get too off topic here, but um, it was something that I heard Warren Buffett say uh, in an interview on 60 Minutes a while ago where he referenced that we've never had as a country more wealth than we have today. And I mean that for everybody from all, all, all classes, whether from the bottom to the top. And as just a reference point to just kind of pinch yourself and be thankful for what we have, despite whatever you read in the headlines, which is trying to just capture your attention and click and click um, click throughs on the internet is that, you know, we have it better off now, no matter where you are, relatively speaking in, um, in terms of the income stratus of, of those who at the bottom to the top, better off, you're better off in large part than Norman Rock, or sorry, not Norman, uh, John D. Rockefeller was. Um, and the reason he was saying that was that think about Rockefeller, like if he wanted to watch a football game, he had to go to the stadium. Now you can just watch it on your big screen. If he wanted to go to the grocery store, you know, he had, it was slow going, you know, now you can have DoorDash and Amazon Fresh deliver stuff to your doorstep. And just, you know, Warren gave a bunch of references around, you know, how good we have it now relative to, you know, how the richest person in the world had it just a generation ago, literally a lifetime ago. Um, so it's pretty remarkable. So I always try and despite the fear that we could be going into some sort of a correction, possibly maybe we stay one off. Um, we all still remember that it's pretty darn good to be here. I've got an article from The Economist. Uh, the last unfulfilled dream of Jamie Dimon, King of Wall Street. The boss of JP Morgan talks to The Economist about recession, China, and what he does next. It's such a puff piece, but it, make, it points out like, what a stud, right? Um, and what does he do next? It's, it's clearly, I don't know. So you wanna make it, you wanna hear a prediction? Here's the prediction that, that he ends up in um, pursuing political office. It's not even that bold. I mean, a lot of people are talking about that rumor, but he look at what he did. He came in like dad and like, okay, I'll, I'll take over First Republic Bank. And he picks it up for a song. Um, anyway, J.P. Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon are remarkable. And this puff piece by The Economist makes it, it's like a trial balloon, says me. Yeah, I think, I think Jamie Dimon, not only what he did with First Republic, but the great financial crisis his role, and there's a few players back then, but their role in helping Warren Buffett included, to Owen's point earlier, um, uh, their role in helping firm up the American banking system and the American economy is is something that, I mean, J.P. Morgan, <clears throat> just so we can we all put, like J.P. Morgan as a bank loaned the U.S. government money when the U.S. government was insolvent not very long ago. And, and, you know, that institution is so critical to our prosperity. Um, it's, uh, it, I think we're lucky to have someone, even in his most polarizing um, times, somebody who's as talented running that. And I hope he stays in the banking system and doesn't try to become the next billionaire to be a politician, because um, I think we've got plenty of those right now. And he's really good at what he does. Okay. Well, that concludes episode 15. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back with episode 16 
17, 18, and we're going to just keep going. Um, but we are going to continue with uh, news only episodes for the rest of summer. Uh, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you.